0: All right, we are January 24th, 9.04 a.m. Eastern, Mullen and Nick recording lesson 2.4 on the mind. Three, two, one. Hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to lesson 2.4. Thank you for being here, and thank you for making a commitment to take responsibility for your health. Uh, In today's lesson, Mullen and I are covering the mind, and we want to share our experience with mental health, and some of the principles that we implement in our lives. Um, As always, if you have any questions about the lesson or you want to contribute resources or a layer two conversation, uh, please message us on Slack. And apart from that, let's dig in. And maybe a good place to start, Malin, is if you wanna share uh, your experience with mental health and then I can do the same and then we'll go through all the topics that we have listed.
1: Sure, sounds good. So my experience, well, um, another Furtner told me about a year ago that I have a too strong mind and that person is not the only one that have told me that and i kind of tend to agree at least from time to time that um my challenge sometimes is to allow my feelings to also be a part of it because i tend to shut that down in favor of uh, what i think or what my mind is is doing so sometimes i also express it as um trying to feel with my mind Um, and it has sometimes been a coping strategy for me uh, in difficult times, uh, which has given me a fairly strong mind Uh, but it also comes with challenges of course because my challenge sometimes is that um, I have a very busy mind and a very dominant mind and I, I work a lot with making it be not so busy and also being a bit more aware Um, of when my mind is sometimes playing me tricks so awareness is really key to mental health for me Uh, both awareness of uh, and maybe knowledge about how the mind works but also awareness of my own mind and how I can work with that Uh, and maybe not always believe what I think because that's one of the key things also when working with the mind I think trying or being able to observe how I think. Uh, and maybe be, be something bigger than just what I think. Um, and maybe also thinking about that it could actually be so that that I may be wrong as one of my favorite authors uh, puts it. He actually has a book uh, named that, which is good to keep in mind. Uh, for me also being present is both a challenge but also a key to to mental health. And my best or my biggest inspiration on that is my kids because uh, fortunately they haven't yet learned to be distracted by a lot of things. So they are mostly present all the time. They are being in the moment and they don't hold on to whatever is on their mind. They just say it out loud um, in order for, for it, to express it and to interact with, with others. And I think a lot of us have a lot to learn from that actually. So that would be basically my experience or thoughts on mental health. Leave it up to, to you next.
0: Cool. Yeah, I think it's very refreshing when you see people authentically uh, expressing in the f- full presence, right? And I um, I share the same experience when it comes to mental health of just sort of struggling for most of my life to harness a busy mind, Um I call it like a high entropy mind seems to be a lot of chaos and I fully admit that I've trained my mind to be that way um, unintentionally until I really started looking into mental health. Uh, You know, essentially training my brain for years to be constantly problem solving which. um, You know running uh, starting a business when I finished physio school that was actually a very productive thing, right? Um, There's always problems to solve if you run a business. And so constantly working to solve those problems was very productive, but it came at a cost, which was a very busy, sometimes out of control, distracted mind um, causing issues with sleep or causing issues with being able to be present in relationships. Um, And I get the same inspiration that you get from your kids um, from animals in my family, right? Like my brother, both my brothers have um, pets and I'll um, sometimes take care of them. And you know, I find animals very fascinating because they're always present. They're always fully authentic. They're never caught in thought. They never hold grudges. Um, they are authentic products of their environment. And, um, you know, one of my brothers adopted a dog from Greece and, and uh, it was an older dog. And so training the dog has been a challenge because she was a street dog for most of her life. And there's this, you know, saying in, in animal training where there's no bad dogs, there's only uninformed owners mm. or untrained owners. And I really find, like in my life, I've I used to just say, "Oh, I just have a crazy brain. I have a, a busy brain," and I kind of like forfeited responsibility by just saying, "Oh, my brain's just like that." But what I realized is that same saying in animal training applies to humans, right? Like, there's no, um, there's no bad brains, no bad minds, only untrained owners, right? And when we look at depression and anxiety, we often look at these as sort of like broken minds that are need something else to fix them. Um, but I really have started to look at it myself as just, I was just an uninformed owner of this brain for a long time. And um, my current sort of perspective in terms of my own mental health is just to work on cultivating an ordered mind. Um, kind of like the same metaphor for like an ordered home, right? Having a home that's clean and ordered is really the result of <clears throat> taking careful action um, and and cleaning the home intermittently and being mindful of where I put th- where I put things in the house. And a neglected home is often messy and cluttered. And I think with mental health, having an ordered mind has the same sort of application, right? If I neglect it, it gets messy and cluttered. Um, if I'm mindful uh, with how I use my mind and what I let into my mind and how I how I'm using it throughout the day, um, then it tends to be uh, much more ordered. And um, and that's really what it boils down to for me is spending daily energy trying to sort of harness the chaos into order so I can maintain good mental health. Um, and sort of sustainably contribute to the world long term. So, you know, I found that when in doubt, I limit inputs, and I prioritize time and solitude. And that seems to always be beneficial. And um, my biggest observation, I think, is that the modern in the modern world, our biggest obstacle is just information overload, right? We're bombarded with so much stuff all the time. And so the ultimate skill is being able to Sort of delineate that information and separate it into like noise which is not as relevant and should be sort of defended against Uh, and then signal like important information right like if we don't have values that really help us understand what's truly important then trying to figure out what we need to know and what we can ignore can be exhausting Mm. and so um yeah let's talk about this notion that the you know mental health or the mind sort of being the front line of health, like a really important element of really, I mean, each pillar is equally important, but I think the sentiment that I've kind of heard amongst foot nerds is that like the mind can be both a, a catalyst for health improvement, but it can also be um, like potentially a really strong limiting element in terms of health. What are your thoughts on the mind as sort of like the front line of health?
1: Yeah, I fully agree with that, because I I mean, going back to what I said about my kids, I see that in them also a lot and what they've already learned so early in life and that we do maybe unconsciously also, um, we as adults teach our kids really early what their limitations are instead of the other way around, using their mind to, to see all the possibilities uh, that they could do and come to if within, let's say, that idea of not limiting themselves. And I think it's it's really important to, to keep that in mind when, when talking about the mind too, that it has so big impact on, on our everyday life, that if you go into a situation, a meeting or whatever it is, or something that you're doing with your health, or going out for a run, if you're going into it with saying that, this is going to be so hard and I don't wanna do it, or if you go into it saying that, yeah, this is going to be fun. Let's see where it leads me. It, it's a totally different thing. And it's solely run by, by what's going on in your mind.
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I love the notion that, and I've started to radically adopt this in my life. It's like, if I decide it's good or bad, or I decide it's hard or easy, either way, I'm right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: so the decision is actually often something we are unconsciously making which becomes our lived reality, right? That colors exactly how we feel during the thing. Um, You know, if you have a difficult interaction with someone else, something that's very challenging, you can either decide this is good and I'm going to learn a lot from this about both myself and the other person. Or you could say, this is terrible. I wish I wasn't here. I wish we weren't doing this. And either way, it's really, it's really, we have a lot more agency, I think, um, if we really like view it as an observer almost instead of just getting like sucked into it and um, almost like, getting out of reactive mode and and taking a bit more energy to respond to a situation instead of just reacting. Uh, yeah. I think that's easier said than done. But I think being aware that that's possible is step number one.
1: Yeah, and I think that now that you mentioned it, I think there is this, this quote that I often go back to that the world is not how it is. It's how you think it is. Mm. And I think that's kind of what you said as well. It's It makes such a huge difference when you when you realize that, that you actually have have a choice how you react to things and, and that you can change that over time when you work with your mind.
0: Yeah. And it's, it is work. Um, yeah, I think the amount of energy, both in just um, thinking of situations, reflecting on situations, understanding situations as an observer, non-judgmentally, like it's a lot of work. Um, and I, I think mental health, you know, just like Um, health is a, is, it has to be viewed as a process, right? We often look at the state of our mental health. Like what is, how is my mental health? And that's essentially taking a snapshot, right? But you can ask yourself that question two days in a row and have radically different answers. Mm. And so I think it, you know, viewing health as a process, viewing mental health as the process of constantly paying attention to your experience and trying to better understand yourself and how your mind works, that is mental health. Like it's not a. It's like not a destination, but I think it's easy to look at it as just a snapshot instead of like an ongoing process that requires energy, right? It's energy. It requires energetic input and a prioritization that spending energy on understanding my mind is important. If you don't hold that as a value, it often doesn't get done, especially in a world of distraction. And so, Mm. um, yeah, once again, like it starts with awareness from awareness, we can start to be, um, sort of, we can start to cultivate some, some self-awareness as time goes on, but we have to know it's important enough and possible to do before we actually engage with that. Um, maybe let's talk about our definitions of mental health, because I think it's, I think it's healthy and good that we all have different definitions, but I also think it's good to discuss our definitions, to see what the common threads are. So Hmm. if someone asks you what mental health is or how you define mental health, what would you say?
1: Well, I, I would focus really much on, on, awareness uh, both of how my mind works and how I can work with it and maybe not against it Uh, and that ability that we already talked about to observe my mind and to be present with that um, rather to then being just absorbed by my mind and letting it rule everything
0: yeah Yeah. and how would you define presence like if someone says when you when you say presence what do you mean by that
1: yeah, that, that's a good question, actually.
0: <laughs> I'm asking it because I was trying to think of it. And I, was like, I don't know. I don't really know how to yeah, define it.
1: I, I, would, I would define that as, as being fully absorbed in the moment and not thinking about what I'm going to do next and also not thinking about something that happened a while ago so when I'm in a situation talking to someone not thinking about what I said two minutes ago and how that might have been and also not thinking about what I'm going to say next because or just being now where I'm at, it at in the conversation in this moment mm. that would be my definition I think
0: that's a good definition I think it's like you know the past and the future can only occur in our mind yeah, like They can't actually, the only thing we have is every second of, of every day. Um, and, it's, and it's, you know, if, if, if everything we've always done with our minds is essentially training our minds to be the way they exist right now, and we're used to always ruminating on stuff or having like multiple paths of thought, right? You might be listening to someone, but you might be thinking of something you need to do later. The more we do that, the more we train our brain at getting good at doing that, and the more we detrain our brain from being able to just be completely immersed in the present moment. So I think once again, it takes like an awareness that that is, it's important to be present, it's healthy to be present. um, But also a sense of importance that it, that's something we need to work on. Um, And, you know, I, I, I really wish in physio school, I had learned more about mental health, because I, you know, looking back, so many of the patients I worked with, mental health was a massive obstacle to them actually getting better. And I didn't know anything about it myself. My my own mental health was terrible now that I look back. Um, And so there was no way I could possibly help them or understand how mental health integrated into their like physical recovery or physical process of improving their health. So, yeah, I don't think it's talked about very much. I, I think the awareness for the word mental health is big because we know we have like mental health problems as a collective, but I don't actually think we dive into the nuance of what does mental health even mean? How does one cultivate improved mental health? Um, What are the indicators of poor or good mental health? Like I've never heard that really unpacked in professional circles that I've been in. Um, And sort of my definition of mental health would be the ability to drop into the present moment with a calm mind and able to meet challenges productively um, and the daily process of improving self-awareness. So It's a process. Being able to be in the present moment with a calm mind, I think is like the perpetual challenge. Um, But you have to know what the objective is in order to get there, right? Even if you're not there right now. And theoretically, if it's a process, you might never get there, but you're always striving to kind of be better at moving towards there. Um, Yeah, I think just defining terms is so, I've learned it's so important because if we have a conversation about mental health and you define it as something completely different than me, we might not be speaking the same language. And it's very hard to have, to have productive discussion if you haven't really kind of aligned on what, what you even mean by mental health. Um, let's talk yeah, about- Yeah, and I
1: think that's, that's really interesting also that you said that not even in, in physio school, uh, you discussed that even because, so where I come from, the more the corporate world, there's always a lot of talk about how can we, especially from a management perspective, avoid mental illness. But as you say, it's, it's never really defined what is mental health. You just define what's mental illness, and then it's right. assumed that everyone knows what the healthy part is. But yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it would benefit a lot to really have a clear uh, and agreed definition of mental health also in that world.
0: Yeah. yeah, and it's the same way with health, you know, like we... You know, I was under the impression when I went into physio school, I'm going to become a health professional. I'm going to work to understand health so I can help people with their health. And what I realized is like, all I learned how to do was to identify disease and to mitigate the symptoms of disease. Mm -hmm. Nowhere in there is health. And I think mental health is the same thing where it's like, we know how to identify the absolute extreme of mental disease, of mental dis-ease, right? Where we're, there's a big problem. But if we never actually understand the lead up of what is the spectrum of like terrible mental health to really good mental health, if we don't understand that spectrum, we can't do anything to actually avoid catastrophe, right? Like we literally just say, we can only help you when you have a major mental problem. Mm. And I think that's a, you know, if that's the case, it's not much of a surprise that so many people hit that catastrophe, hit that level. And sometimes it's like the silent disease, right? Because we don't, there's no external... Like when you break your arm, you put a cast on, there's a visible thing that says like that person had an injury. I think a lot of people just walk around with um, a sense of uneasiness in their mind. Um, And it's almost been normalized to the point where we just accept that that might just be our reality Uh, because we're never taught that it could be different. We're never taught how to like, you know, if you're overweight or you don't have a lot of strength, we know. If I go to the gym, I change what I eat, or I do strength training. I will get stronger. I will lose weight. We're not the the parallel of mental health is just not there, right? Like physical training has a different aura and a sense of cultural cultural awareness compared to something like mental training. But I think mental training is the more important one from the perspective of the society we live in today, and the fact that most of us are walking around with cluttered minds that are giving us problems that we create ourselves um because we don't know how to sort of identify them um yeah very interesting how it's like it seems to be like a big blind spot in 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 culture we we talk about it but the blind spot is that we don't actually understand what we're talking about or or even make efforts to really unpack and talk about it um until it's a big problem so
1: yeah yeah. and I think maybe part of it is that information overload or the I mean all the screens we walk around with all the time that really distract us without maybe sometimes even realizing it. Yes. Um, so it's, it's really something that's, um, oh, there's this book in Sweden. I, I don't know if it's translated to English yet, but it's called, if you translate it, it's called the Screen Brain.
0: Ooh, that's a good title. <laughs>
1: and, and there's even a version of Screen Brain Juniors. So it's it's focused on how it affects our kids. And I think that's even more important because at least I, I'm so old that, that I grew up without a screen, which mm-hmm. I think is good. And and for, for kids in the world right now that are connected to screens already from really early age, I, I think there's going to be, unless we start to be more aware and start to focus more on these topics, then it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when that generation grows up. Yeah,
0: Interesting is a gentle way of putting it. Uh, I agree. It's, it's definitely concerned. I mean, I see it in my own life, how quickly I can get hacked and roped in by, uh, the dopamine factory, right. The screen that is on us all the time. And I can only imagine, you know, when I was going through high school, I had a flip phone, which I'm very grateful for. Mm -hmm. Um, and even that was like, you know, there was no, there was no apps, right? All you could do was text. And even that was exciting. It's like, Oh, I could talk to people now with this <laughs> little computer in my pocket. But now it's like in the world of TikTok and Instagram and craziness. Um, I think there, I think we're at a point where it's like, if we don't tune into this and really try and understand how this is affecting kids, um, I think there's going to be really big consequences. Mm. And, uh, and it's a hard problem to solve because there's so much money incentivizing not solving the problem. Um, but starts with awareness and just having this conversation and anyone listening, we can start to have a discussion even just within our small community and being like, how do we approach this? How, do we, how are we each individually solving this or observing this in our own families, and our own lives? Um, yeah, And taking responsibility
1: starts. for it, yeah.
0: And taking responsibility, mm-hmm. yep knowing full well that there's a big asymmetry of power. And so taking responsibility can be difficult, but it's very important. Um, let's talk about mindfulness. I'd love to hear your thoughts on, because mindfulness is like a word that has, gets a lot more pressed these days. Like it's kind of like working into the common culture. You see these, um, you know, on the business side, mindfulness is a very big business now, but I think it might be losing some of its substance Uh, along with that so what are your what are your thoughts on mindfulness how do you define it how do you cultivate it Um, what comes to mind when people say the word mindfulness
1: oh yeah a lot of things I would say (laughs) I think that's that's where many people start when they are trying to start meditation perhaps because mindfulness meditation is is one of the things that you are or that is getting kind of big but to me, I would say mindfulness is is not as maybe not as focused as a sitting down doing a meditation but more doing things again with awareness and and being present in what you do. I mean you can be mindful doing the dishes mm. as long as you are only doing the dishes and feeling what's how it feels to have your hands in the water maybe and if it's cold or hot water and if everything is getting clean as it should and so on and not thinking about what I should do next or trying to problem solve everything else going on in my life but being just there in in the moment with without really putting too much I don't know judgment into it but just observing myself and what I'm doing at the moment how would you uh, define mindfulness and what's your ideas on it
0: yeah I think just Paying full attention to the present moment is the is my definition of mindfulness. Um, I think mindfulness also involves the recognition of when I drift away from the present moment, knowing full well that it's it's probably going to happen, um, and. know i I should be non-judgmental what i shouldn't say oh i'm not even paying attention to the to what i'm doing right now right i think that's the that's that was like what i did for a long time but Mm -hmm. now it's just like oh that's interesting i'm drifting off here i'm thinking about this that must be something i haven't dealt with that my brain is trying to deal with and so just observing like okay i want to focus and spend energy on um recognizing whether or not i'm present when i'm doing something and if i do drift away recognize when that happens what i think of and then work on getting better at bringing myself back to the present moment and, and mitch foot mitch harbaugh uh, is a foot nerd in tampa and he has this thing um i can't remember where he picked it up from but it's short times many times so mm-hmm. many short periods where you are acutely self-aware of what you're doing in the moment and making sure you're there paying attention to the present moment instead of drifting away in thought. And I think it's just like repetitions, right? The more you work to tune in and and, and observe whether or not you're present, the easier that mental circuit um, is to run. And then eventually it becomes your default where you kind of, you know, you have to work at something that is novel. But after a certain amount of time, a certain amount of repetitions, it becomes sort of your default. Um, and I think we're all trying to get to the point where our default is to be present, right, instead of distracted. Um, Yeah. So mindfulness is just like paying attention to the present moment and working to kind of recognize when I drift away. Um, And once again, everyone should have kind of a slightly different definition of mindfulness that resonates with them. And I think our definitions should be dynamic over time because like even having this conversation with you, probably some of my definitions will change slightly because I'm Mm. getting a new set of information from someone else who's also taking an interest in mental health or mindfulness or whatever the subtopic might be. Um, and so like having loosely held, having high conviction in whatever definition you have, but holding it loosely so that you can keep it flexible and changeable over time yeah. and, um, and making an effort just to have conversations about topics, I think is how we, it's kind of how we all learn, um,
1: Yeah, Yeah, and I think also when when it comes to mindfulness, for me, one of the keys is to be a little bit gentle with myself, because I mean, it does, as you say, it does happen all the time that, okay, I am maybe in the present moment for a while, but then I drift away pretty fast, because I have a busy mind. But then to be more curious and gentle about that and see, like you said, okay, where did I end up now? And why did I end up there? Okay, that's interesting. Maybe I need Mm. to focus on that for a little bit more to to be able to be here in the present moment again rather than to saying to beat myself up because i'm not able to be present but more investigating being a bit gentle with myself i find more helpful when trying to be more mindful
0: i love the word the notion of kind curiosity right like curiosity just implies like you're curious to, to to like understand what happened. You don't quite understand it, but you're curious to want to inquire, to want to do Mm -hmm. a purposeful inquiry. And um, I agree. And even just knowing, you know, like kind of beating ourselves up for getting distracted or drifting away. I think when we realize how, how strongly distractions nudge us towards both like a shallow, shallow level of attention and also like a flittering attention. Like when I see people multitasking, what I really see is someone training their brain to not it's like they're tra- training their brain to be the opposite of uh, mindful and be <laughs> in the present. Right. We don't think of, we think of multitasking as like this thing this is key to productivity is multitasking. When in reality, it's like, it's kind of like detraining yourself from being present in the moment, right? Detraining yourself, from being able to have focused concentration, um, like deliberate concentration on something specific, Mm. notably the present moment. Um, So just knowing that we live in an environment of distractions and when we do get distracted, identifying sort of what distracted us, uh, I think that's an important one for me, too, because then I can defend against it. Right. It's like, okay, well, my phone screen went off and I looked over there and I got distracted. Well, if I flip my phone over or put it somewhere else, I can eliminate that distraction in future and not getting mad at myself that I looked at my phone, but just noticing that, okay, I maybe have to protect myself from distraction in order to make it easier to be in the present moment, um, instead of constantly fighting against all the distractions that I'm putting around me. Mm. So yeah, just self-awareness, I think is self-awareness is such a big word. How do you you define self-awareness?
1: Um, I would say having a little bit of distance to myself and, and by that, I mean that I can realize or observe what I'm doing uh, without putting too much judgment onto it and also maybe without internalizing it too much as be a part of my being, but rather being aware of what I do more than what, what I am,
0: mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot How of sense. How would you define it? Well, if, just to put a pin on what you're saying, I think... I've often conflated what I do with who I am. Right. And if you yeah. start to view what you do and who you are as separate things, you're a person, you happen to do these things instead of like these things define who I am. I think mm. that's really important because it allows you to, like you say, observe non-judgmentally and curiously your behaviors, just like you would be observing somewhere else.
1: Mm.
0: Right. It's like if I if I'm observing my, my brother's kid, right? My nephew, he's two years old. I observe him and I don't judge anything he does. I just observe it and, and find it very interesting how he does all these things and trying to observe myself with the same, the exact same perspective where it's like, you know, stepping outside of myself, like you said, distancing yourself um, and then just observing non-judgmentally allows you to to really tune into the curious curiosity aspect instead of always identifying with the behaviors you do or or placing a judgment on them right this Mm -hmm. is a good thing or a bad thing why am i doing this bad thing it's like none of that just oh it's interesting that i'm doing that maybe i'll note that down and if this behavior doesn't reflect the type of uh, behaviors that i want to do based on the person i want to become then i got to figure out how to unwind that behavior it's not like i'm going to stop doing that it's like well what's the reason i'm doing that there's always a reason right behaviors are just solutions to problems that we face and if they're habits they're problems we face on a repeated basis so really i think you actually get much more solution oriented when you're curious because you're actually trying to understand it instead of just labeling it good or bad and then trying to force it out like you're actually trying to understand what is the cause of that and often that leads to self-awareness insights that trickle over into other areas um, of our life so um mental training and solitude that was sort of the next subtopic. so you know, I had never really, I picked this up from Sam Harris in the waking up app, this whole notion of mental training to sort of like go along with the parallel physical training, right? We look at physical training. I need to, if I train myself physically, I will be left with a body that's adapted based on the training stimulus that I expose it to. Started to really think of mental health, uh, working on my mental health as like mental training. What tools do I have you know, like in the gym, you might have dumbbells, barbells, kettlebells, what tools exist in the realm of mental training? And how do I program that into my life, just like I incorporate physical training? So what are your thoughts on sort of the notion of mental training? And then also solitude? Like, how big of a role does that play in your life? How do you define solitude? I'd love to hear your thoughts.
1: Mm, solitude is not very present in my life, I have to say.
0: <laughs> I guess when you have kids, it's much more difficult. I,
1: exactly. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> but that, that's, well, because of that, it actually gets even more important because I really cherish the moments in solitude that I have a chance to get. And I try to get it uh, from time to time because I see that it makes such a difference. Um I try to spend time on my own in the evenings when the kids are asleep uh, and, and also sometimes if possible in the morning to at least get some moments every day to just kind of let things that are going on in my mind come to or come down a little bit so that it gets a little bit calmer and I can see more clearly. Um, that's, that's kind of my tools that I use, but there's of course also many other ways that you can train your mind, not only solitude, but also, I mean, specific um, methods and and so on to, to work with your mind, depending on where you're at uh, yourself, of course, but uh, how would you look into it?
0: Well, I heard that I like, I very recently heard a definition of solitude that really resonated. And I, I I can't remember, I think it might've been Cal Newport in his book, Deep Work defined it, where it was like, being free of input from other minds.
1: Mm.
0: And actually it may have been Sam Harris, regardless, free of input from other minds. And they went even deeper to unpack this. It says like, no, uh, input from other minds can be, you know, and the easiest one we think of is like, if you're speaking to someone, right? Someone is speaking to you, there's input coming from someone, another mind, but also like listening to a podcast, reading a book, reading an article, you know, these are all, you're receiving input created by someone else. And so this whole notion of solitude, you know, what I found was that I was filling in all the, all the moment, the potential opportunities for solitude with some sort of input, right? If I go for a walk, I'd listen to a podcast. If I had a free half an hour, I would read something and I love doing those things. But what I realized is like, I was never actually spending time free of input from other minds and that was creating like clutter because I never had the opportunity to really like spend time with my own mind. Um, Mm -hmm. so I think solitude is like, I view that as a mental training tool. Um, and I've started to look at the difficulty of being in solitude. Like how much discomfort do I experience when I'm in solitude as an indicator as to how much have I ramped up my dopamine system, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I've been really seeking dopamine and, and gravitating towards that, it could be anything, right? It could be like apps. It could be entertainment. Um, it can be entertaining, really exciting project ideas that get me very excited. Um, it can be any form of drug, coffee, cannabis, anything if I'm really responding to those dopamine triggers in my life, it seems to sort of like create a system where my system becomes less responsive to dopamine naturally, right? Like if there's a flood of dopamine, the natural response homeostatically is downregulate the dopamine receptors. And then when I go into solitude, because I've been downregulated, it can actually be very uncomfortable if I've been, you know, it's kind of like a balance right? If the dopamine goes high, there has to be a reciprocal balancing where the dopamine goes really low. And so I think for me, prioritizing solid time in solitude, and I, I don't have kids, I have a life where I kind of get to do what I want. I'm very lucky in that way. And so I can engineer solitude, but I find that when I am in solitude, it's a really good indicator of, um, you know, how little time am I spending in solitude and how much am I, how much do I need to recalibrate my dopamine system? I think solitude for me has been a really good training tool to just assess that. Um, and yeah, I think training focus too, like my biggest mental training tool is to train the ability to focus on something, right? Because you just being able to focus on, something. if you wanna be in the present moment, you actually have to theoretically be able to focus your attention to the present moment. That's almost like a precursor step. Uh, and for me, the, the, the baby step for training focus was actually the balance beam. That's why I found it so, powerful in my life. Cause I was like, if I stand on one leg on something and try and balance and it's difficult, well, every time I fall off is a beautiful feedback mechanism to say you drifted off, you stopped mm-hmm. thinking mm-hmm. of just one thing. And so that was kind of like my training wheels to be able to get to more routine, um, and sort of more, I would say difficult initially tools for mental training, uh, like meditation, for example. Um, but yeah, just being able to, I think training my focus is like my biggest thing with mental training, and that might be some, it might be like playful, simple things, right? Like balancing a stick on my hand and trying to just focus on not letting it fall off or standing on a balance beam or whatever it might be. Um, but I think it's easy to never have solitude unless you really think it's important, especially combined with the fact that solitude can be uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. I really started to notice the importance of that. So, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah. And I, I really liked what you said about the connection to the dopamine, because I've experienced that, what you mentioned also, of course, that when I try to be in solitude, that it just, my whole body is more like trembling almost to to do something because it's so uncomfortable to be there. But I I never actually connected it to the dopamine, but it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's, I I recently listened to a podcast on Joe Rogan where he had a, um, an addiction specialist and she gave such a beautiful metaphor for this teeter totter. And on one side you have pain and on one side you have pleasure. And the more time you spend with pleasure being ramped up, the more time reciprocally you're going to have Mm -hmm. in pain to counterbalance it.
1: Yeah, Yeah. And
0: this week, this weekend I was at a cottage and they had a wood fire sauna and we did like I have friends who do, who run fairly intense sauna sessions. I will say they're like very (laughs) uncomfortable, very hot, fairly long. And what I realized was the opposite also held true. We, we, you know, we'd get up in the morning, have some coffee and we do a really hard sauna session. And it was almost like, you know, that teeter totter of pain and pleasure. We went into pain for a decent amount of time because we found it meaningful and we enjoyed the the challenge, Mm. but immediately after I could do nothing. I could literally sit looking at a lake and I had, it was like I was high.
1: yeah. And so yeah. the
0: opposite also held true. And I think we often gravitate to all these sources of pleasure that are at our fingertips and around us all the time and we're left with the pain. But if we do these hard physical challenges, we often get like this free, we get this free time in pleasure because we've put in some discomfort. I just, I'm still kind of yeah. working through yeah. thinking of that, but yeah. I think the dopamine dysregulation is like such a, when she was talking about it, I was like, Oh my God, this is like such an important concept today Mm -hmm. um, that we just don't talk about enough. And I think it's, uh, I think it's profound.
1: Yeah, I think so too. And I have a friend who she's been talking about that. She's doing a dopamine reset recently. And Mm. I, I didn't fully dig into what she was talking about, but now it, it makes actually a lot more sense. And yeah, I see where it comes from.
0: Yeah. And we're just wired. I mean, we're wired to move towards pleasure and move away from pain. It's just like, but we're not wired to exist in the world of today. So once you know that it's, it allows yourself to be a lot more forgiving knowing that like, you know, it's more work today um, to really find that balance, but it's worth it. You know, if you, and, and the the crazy thing is like, you get to a point where if you hit that dopamine um, trigger so many times, you end up having to continue hitting that trigger, not even to actually feel pleasure, just to not feel pain. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, that's where we get to, where it's like, we just grab the phone. I'm so yeah. uncomfortable right now. I'm just gonna grab my phone. I'm not even doing it to feel immense sense of pleasure. I'm, I'm just doing it to not be in pain. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, the longer we lean into that, um, the more we accumulate this deficit of dopamine that we have to confront at some point right? There's no, in, you cannot indefinitely hit the, hit the dopamine trigger, um, without the suffering on the other side. And I think a lot of mental suffering comes from just maxing out that dopamine trigger in whatever way. Um, and not realizing that there's a cost to that. And, mm. um, it makes you really start to view hitting that dopamine button much more objectively because you're like I know there's going to be a counterbalance to this so maybe I won't lean into it as hard because then I w- I'm saving myself the pain on the other end um, yeah. Anyway, yeah I'll reference the podcast in here because I think the you know I think we'll probably have some layer two conversations about addiction that are very relevant
1: so. yeah yeah and then it all comes back to the mind again and the awareness of what's actually going on and and being able to reflect on it and and also maybe consciously, or maybe easily consciously put yourself in those situations where you experience the kind of pain to make it balance a little bit more. Mm. So I think, that's, yeah, it's, it all comes back to, to being aware of what's going on in our minds, basically kind of.
0: Yes. Which is like not an easy task and a lifelong, you know, lifelong work. Uh, but yeah. I think it's very rewarding once you start to really see oh, yeah. the, um, the results from putting in that effort um i'll quickly talk about rain and then maybe we can talk about meditation and then we'll do reframing so yeah so good. rain was a term that mitch um mitch harbaugh has done a lot of work to kind of um into mindfulness and meditation and has learned from some really good teachers so i really enjoy talking to him about this and i'm sure he'll have good conversations for layer two but rain is a term coined by michelle mcdonald And it was popularized by popularized by people like Tara Brock and Judson Brewer, who both work in sort of the mindfulness meditation space. But essentially, it's a tool to understand and to help change our habits. And RAIN stands for recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification. And so it kind of like, it kind of touches on a lot of things we've already sort of spoken about, right? Recognition being kind of self-awareness accepting non-judgmentally with curiosity, having an interest uh, in understanding it, and then not identifying with whatever's going on. And so I, I think really it Rain just describes the qualities of our attention that make up a complete moment of uh, mindfulness, right? Like a, basically an alternative, a framework that helps us explore an alternative to simply blinding, blindly reacting to what's happening around us. And it offers us choice, right? A choice of how we want to respond. And so, you know, as an experiment for people listening to this, start applying RAIN in your life, right? So, and I'll give like a concrete example. You have a, um, a disagreement with someone you work with. It's a very heated disagreement. People get emotional. People maybe yell. And so in that situation, it would be recognize what's going on. Maybe start by taking a deep breath. Recognize what's going on objectively without any blame or judgment. Allow the experience to just be there as it is. And don't try and change it initially. Investigate it with sort of like a curiosity and a kindness, right? Like, how did we get to this situation? What am I contributing to this situation? Because a a bad interact, quote unquote, bad interaction between two people takes two people. It's never one person. But I think Mm -hmm. it's very easy to always think it's the other person. Um, And then by not identifying with the experience, we allow ourselves to sort of maintain a natural awareness where we're not instantly going into blame mode or reaction mode. We're just kind of aware of it. And um, and you had actually written an acronym, uh, STOP. So maybe you, you could chat about that, because that seems to be very uh, parallel.
1: It, it's kind of similar. Um, and, and it comes, It originally, I think it comes from the military. Um, so it, it's really good because it, it's STOP. And then the acronym, it stands for STOP, THINK, ORIENT, and PLAN. Um, And since it comes from the military, uh, it's usually from the beginning, I think, used in more, let's say, intense situations where you need to regroup and make maybe another plan or to what you're going when you're happening in in military situation. But it's also something that has at least here been used in uh, when you work with kids to to especially with with kids. with having maybe um, like autistic kids and those kind of diagnosis um, to give them a framework to really have something to hold on to that it's easy to to define saying okay stop when you're doing this why are you having this tantrum or why are you hitting your friend or whatever it is and then think okay what's going on define it orient yourself what would have been a, would have been a better way to to handle it maybe and and make sure you can do it in that way by planning the next time so it's it's kind of the same concept but not not quite i would say
0: yeah and that's you know sometimes all it takes is a pause right like we we it's so easy to just get hijacked and be going towards uh, on this path that we don't we didn't even actually decide to go on that path it was decided for us and so just taking a pause like a deep breath and giving yourself like a tiny bit of space to just actually think so you can respond instead of react. I think that's a very, you know, and it, it's it's probably most difficult to remember rain or to remember stop if you've never done it before, right? It's very difficult <clears throat> because we're creatures of habit, right? Our neural circuits just run and the more times specific circuits have run, the easier it is for them to continue to run whether we're aware of it or not. But the first couple of times you intentionally implement that, um, Every time after that, it gets easier, right? And and like we said, it's like the goal should, you know, it doesn't have to be this long explicit thing where you take 10 minutes and go through, recognize, allow all that kind of stuff, but it can just be quick. And the more you do it, the more reps you do, the easier it is to remember to do it and the quicker you end up going through it. And it might only take you 10 seconds, but I think as an exercise, um, you know, whether it's stop, if you're in a very intense situation, or if maybe if you have a little bit more time, like you're reflecting on something after the fact, Maybe rain is better there. Um, once again, rain is recognized, recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification. And so it's really just about gaining some awareness, non-judgmentally about what happened or what is happening, being curious, and then sort of deciding what you want to learn from that lesson. Um, and I think that's a more energy intensive path to take, but it's also a much more rewarding path in terms of gaining a better understanding of yourself um, and avoiding blaming others. Um, because I think that's the, it's often the easiest thing to do is like basically accept that the world, there's a problem with the world, with others or with the world around me. Um, and that sucks. And I don't like that. Mm. Whereas it's much more difficult to say, what am I doing to contribute to this? And how can I change how I'm responding to situations like this? especially if I find myself in a repeating pattern of having poor interactions, it's like, well, it's time to look in the mirror. And I think rain just allows you to look in the mirror without any sense of blame on yourself, just being curious. Um,
1: yeah. And especially if it's like you said, if it's, if it's habitual things that that's kept keeps repeating over and over, like if you always at five o'clock in the, in the evening end up in a fight with, with someone because you're hungry, then maybe use this framework to see, okay, next time this happens, let's see just recognize it accept and, and and so on go through the through the framework to to use it and then as you said it's hardest the first time but if you decide on a one specific thing that you want to change that maybe habitually occurs and then use this framework it gets easier and easier and then it's probably easier to implement also on on other areas to may to get the framework itself to set as a habit when, when things occur and when you end up in situations or when you want to change something or
0: yeah. Yeah. And even, um, you know, the deep breath for me ser- serves as a prompt mm. often where it's like, okay, if all I have to do to do is remember to take a deep breath. And then my, that deep breath instantly reminds me to go through sort of something like rain or just to take a second to observe it. All I have to remember is to do the deep breath and the deep breath yeah. is the prompt to the go, get, then go into it. So you have to kind of, it's like, a, if you treat it like a game, like, oh, I forgot to do any of this. Um, how am I going to remember next time? Well, I'll try this experiment. I'll try having some sort of prompt. Or, better yet, if there is a specific person that you find yourself having um, challenging situations with and they matter and they're meaningful in your life, maybe you mention it to them. Say, I'm trying to work on this thing where I go through a rain um, or go through this process to kind of recognize when I'm getting triggered or when I'm, you know, reacting in a bad way so can you kind of remind me just to take a pause or do you want to work on this together do you want to do you want to talk about what rain means i just learned it you know like i think really involving others because we learn through others right we learn through interactions with others we're mirrored through interactions with others and oftentimes the things we're most critical about in others are really the things we're most critical about in ourselves so involving others in our process of trying to improve self-awareness i think is Really beneficial and it brings up the conversation of mental health self-awareness which is probably a good thing if more of us are talking about it yeah um let's talk about meditation i'd love to hear your thoughts um on meditation you know what from you know when did you discover meditation and you know there's a lot of ways to apply the word meditation so what ways do you apply it in your life where does meditation play a role in your mental health process Um, yeah love to hear your thoughts
1: yeah uh, i could talk i think (laughs) for hours about meditation (laughs) so i'll try to keep it short um well um nowadays or i would say this time since a couple of months back i do daily meditations Uh, i've done that on different periods in my life but now for the last time i think it's three or four months um different types of meditations um, but I've come to a point where I'm actually looking forward to my daily meditations because it's so I I noticed that it gives me or it gives such a big difference in my everyday life Uh, I'm able to cope with situations in a a different way than I maybe was before but I think there's also a lot of um, prejudices about meditation and, and what it really is, and, and maybe as we talked about before, that it's actually part of med, um, mental training rather than something that you are doing and knowing how to do from the start. And not because I, I I'm also a yoga teacher, so I meet it. I do meditations for others sometimes, and and I often hear that oh no, you know, meditation is not for me. I have such a busy mind. I can't do it. Well, it, it's kind of, it's like saying, oh, no, weightlifting is not for me. I, I can't lift 100K, so I won't do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's um, um, something that you have to train also on. or Probably most people, when they do the med- meditation for the first time, it's going to be hard for the reasons that we've already talked about of the busy and cluttered and distracted mind. And the idea that meditation is something that you do in order to have a silent mind. But I think uh, what Light Watkins says in, I think it's in his book, but also in some podcasts, I heard with him that um, thoughts are actually the sweat of meditation. So if you um, do that uh, physical training and when you're sweating, you know that you've done your workout pretty well. And thoughts are the same thing in a meditation. If you sit down and think that you shouldn't have any thoughts at all, that's just not going to happen at and least for possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and I think also here, it's really important to, to have some gentleness towards yourself, some curiosity when you start to do meditation, uh, and maybe not have the highest expectations in the beginning, maybe, one or two minutes is a good way to start if you're totally beginner on meditation. Um, I don't know what you say, what's your experience in meditation and how did you come into it?
0: Yeah. Meditate, meditation was so hard for me at the start. Like I, I went through several points where I was just like, maybe I'm just not cut out to meditate. You know, like every, I think everyone does that at the start. We're just like, ah, it's not for me. You know, it's like saying, no, yeah. Breath, breathing isn't for me. It's like, yeah, it's for everyone you just don't know yet. And so I went through several phases of just not trying to do a daily meditation session. I started with five minutes and that was near impossible. Mm. Um, It was the discomfort of having such a busy mind and the sort of like this, like you said, this false notion that meditation means having no thoughts. I suck at having no thoughts. Therefore, what's the point of doing this if I can't do it right? And for me, light walk, hearing Light Watkins on the Rangan Chatterjee podcast and then buying his book, Bliss More, and reading, like, really when he laid out, <clears throat> most people think meditation is zero thoughts, someone sitting upright in, like, half lotus, um, completely peaceful. And he's like, what reality is, is you sit on the couch like you're watching Netflix all slumped over and you show up for two minutes and regardless of what happens, you feel good that you showed up. And I was like, oh my, that's exactly what I needed to hear. Because from that point on, it wasn't actually, what actually happened during the session had no bearing on whether I considered it a success or not. It was literally just, I showed up, I sat down, I spent time with my own thoughts. Um, and I sort of just acknowledged whatever came up as valid. And it didn't it didn't have any bearing on whether I was meditating well or not meditating well. Right. Once I got rid of that notion and it was just showing up, like... You know, I've, I've helped tried to help some people get into a meditation habit. I was like, just start by putting a yoga cushion or something like create a space where you meditate, just go there and sit there for 10 seconds and then leave and just know that like you've started, right? Even if nothing happens there, even if you just sit down and then get back up, you're starting to build sort of like the habit of going to a certain place intentionally and taking time to do this thing, which is hard right now, but gets easier as time goes on. And so I probably started like, probably three years ago, I used the waking up app to get up to five minutes a day. And then that was Mm -hmm. good. And then I got up to 10 minutes of listening to like a guided meditation. And then I went back down to five minutes, but I did it with nothing. Um, And I actually started by just looking at, I had like this little shelf with some plants and I would just look at the plants for five minutes and just like recognize where my brain went and acknowledge everything as okay. And, and I started to look at where my brain went as something that was really informative. It's like, clearly that's a problem I haven't dealt with that I'm not dealing with because I'm procrastinating, but it's constantly coming into my awareness. So I started to really tune into the thoughts and then now I meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. And like you, like you I actually look forward to it most days, the second session, sometimes is harder at the end of the day. Um, but I actually look forward to it. And if I, and, you know, if there's something that happens and I, and I don't get that session and I actually feel significantly less clear. And Mm -hmm. so I will purposefully just be like, this is too important to skip. And then I'll, I'll go and find a place to do it. Um, but I really like this concept of, um, call it inbox zero. And it was a metaphor that I heard from Naval Ravikant. And he talked about how when you first start meditating, it's kind of like you have this inbox, this email inbox that has a thousand emails that you've never checked. And so they're just waiting there and kind of like, eating away at your background, mental energy, because they're there, your brain knows they're there, you're not dealing with them. And basically, he said that every time you sit down to meditate, you start going through the emails. Well, you don't have to send a reply, but you're acknowledging them as, as being valid and existing. And you get that for a long time, right? There might be a lot of emails there. But eventually, you get to a point where there's no more emails to check. And you get to inbox zero. And then there's like this sense of calmness. But you have to go through all the busyness of going through each of those individual emails or thoughts or problems you haven't dealt with in order to get to that point. And that might take a long time. Mm -hmm. Um, it took me a huge amount of time and the, the hardest part was just acknowledging that this whole monkey mind of my brain being chaos when I was sitting with no other inputs is actually, that is the process. And so, yeah, I think for me, it's like, that's my primary tool. Um, and I've started to become more flexible in what I call meditation too, right? If I like, if I go for a 30 minute walk, with no external input. I consider that like an active form of meditation, right? Mm. Standing on a beam for me is like a form of meditation. And sometimes I prefer to go on a walk than just to sit down with myself, um, with, you know, on the floor in a certain area. So I think being flexible in how you view meditation and maybe even like short times, many times, that that perspective might help as well. But uh, I think the biggest thing is like, it is difficult when you first start, it's really difficult. I think the feedback we got from foot nerds last year with the meditation project, which is five minutes a day for 30 days straight. um, And we have that listed as an experiment for this year's program, like the difficulty people have uh, or had or expressed having, and these are people who are really committed to their health, right? These are like the cream of the crop are the people who want to take responsibility. If it's difficult for them, I can only imagine the difficulty for people who really aren't don't know that they can really take a lot of resp- responsibility for their health so i get it i get the difficulty i went through it firsthand but i think it's so rewarding when you start to reframe it and i think just viewing it as if i show up i'm i'm doing it regardless of what happens when i when i am actually within meditation i think that was the most important thing for me
1: yeah. And I think also, again, the, the curiosity, perhaps, because that what I, I, I also found that 30 days in a row, five minutes, at least five minutes a day, really challenging mm. because it got to kind of, or for me, it turned into a little bit of a, let's say, performance that I have to do this and I have to perform well. Whereas now that I started again with my meditation, and I was just in a in a really stressful period of my life in the autumn, and then I just felt that okay, now now I need to get meditation in again in my life, but let's see how long it lasts. I'll I'll just do it every day for at least ten minutes, uh, as long as it feels good, and then it let's say the performance part of it was uh, was not there anymore, so. It was just more like an inner shift of feeling the need for doing the meditation and then having the stillness there. But that probably came from tr- having tried it before and having done that as an experiment uh, in order to improve my health too. But now it's it's a totally different thing now and, and I actually look forward to it every day. And, and so I think really it's important to give it time. And if you're not successful in implementing that habit the first time maybe it comes in a later stage because you've kind of tried it and are aware of the uh, benefits of of doing it and maybe also working sometimes at least from five minutes up to maybe 20 minutes as you said because that's when when the magic really starts to happening kind of where you actually on the different occasions give the thoughts time to really clear that if you have a thousand emails to clear up it takes some time to come through it in order for the inbox to be empty, I guess. So it's, um, and one concept that I also really like is, is was um, psychologist that actually told me is to think of your thoughts as, as a beach ball. So if you try to um, put it under a surface and hold it under the surface, like the unwanted thoughts and the monkey mind maybe, if you unwillingly or willingly let it go it just bumps up and makes a big jump so everything comes back even more but mm-hmm. if you just allow it to be on the surface it floats gently and just has a really yeah calm way of being on the surface so just allowing the thoughts is i think also a very good or really important parts of meditation
0: yeah And just welcoming them, like not trying to, like you say, not trying to like good luck fighting a beach ball to stay underwater for long enough. Like it's you're (laughs) going to lose the battle, right? Buoyancy wins. Um, I liked what you said about, you know, this whole notion that I I actually feel it takes me like 10 minutes to even get into meditation now, right? Like Mm. if I do it for 20 minutes, the first 10 is like me settling into it. And the last 10 is really where, you know, maybe if I have a thousand emails, I don't have to go through them all, but it's almost like my brain feels like, okay, you've done 10 emails. That's good. We can feel okay that you've acknowledged some of these messages that you you haven't been uncovering. And so now you get to just have more of a clear mind for the for the last part of meditation. And I think um I think having multiple attempts where you hit an obstacle and you have to sort of quote unquote begin again because you went off the rails. I think that's actually it's like the initiation that you, everyone needs to go through in order to get to a point of appreciating and understanding meditation for what it is not as, uh, cause before that I had friends that mentioned meditation and I was kind of like, that's like this weird esoteric thing that, you know, um, monks do or something like that. Like I made every excuse in the book to say why meditation wasn't for me. Right. And I think most of it just came from the realization that like, I'm scared to do it. So I'm, I'm just going to say, it's not good for me. Um, and once you really start to dive in and, and have the reward be to show up, not to do it what you think is perfectly, there's no perfect way of doing it, um, then it makes it so much easier, right? Like there's no, it's not as much of a struggle, right? It's just a, it's still difficult, but it's not like an, a, a painful struggle because you're just thinking about how terribly you're doing it the whole time. That was me at the start. Um, mm. So I, I really found Light Watkins' book, Bliss More, very powerful because it was like a pragmatic simple approach to just approaching meditation um, without putting any prejudice on what meditation should be or what is meditation right just approaching it as like time with my own thoughts accepting and being curious to whatever comes in Uh, and everything that comes in is important don't try and shove the ball under the water and once you once you sort of start to embody that and actually feel that it's like it's a totally different exercise And I think that's where you start to really uncover the benefits. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Let's just briefly talk about reframing because I think this is, for me, this has been a really powerful exercise as like a tool. Um, and reframing really stems from this notion that everything that all events and everything that happens to us, uh, everything is neutral until we place a judgment on it. So everything that happens to us is essentially has, has, is not bad or good until we make a decision as to whether it's bad or good and so I think just being aware that we are consciously deciding to interpret things as good or bad and that we actually have agency in how we uh, interpret things and that we can actually reframe things from being something that maybe formerly we thought of as bad to being something that's actually good right and there's this old Chinese proverb um where this family has a horse. The horse runs away. Everyone in the village says, Oh, that's so bad. Your horse ran away. And the guy, just kind of, the guy that owns this horse says, Maybe. And then the next day, the horse comes back with five other horses uh, with it. And the people in the village are like, Oh my God, it's so good. Your horse came back and five other horses came with it. And he kind of just says, You know, maybe. Um, and then the horses, there's so many horses, they, they uh, you know, they like run into his kid and break his leg. And the people are like, oh, it's so bad. All the horses, you know, they injured your son. And he's like, maybe. And then the military comes and says, all young men must go into the army to fight a war. And then the son gets passed because his legs broken and everyone's like, oh, it's so great. Your son uh, didn't get, you know, enlisted in the military and he just says, like, maybe. Anyway, this goes on and on. But the point is, is like, we just don't judge a situation. We don't even know that what happened, if we interpret it as bad, could actually end up being something good. And if we decide it's bad, we almost eliminate the possibility of it eventually being good. And so I started to kind of exercise this as a form of mental training to kind of build a habit of viewing things as good, um, regardless of how I previously would have interpreted them. And I remember the first time I really got this where it wasn't a huge amount of effort. It was almost like default. I remember it vividly because I had just come back from a trip. It was winter. A giant slab of ice fell off the roof of the house I was renting and slammed on my car It made a giant dent in the ceiling and knocked off the antenna. And I remember it was the first time that, and I was like, sleep deprived. It was a, like a struggle of a flight and there was snow everywhere. I had to clean everything. And the easiest thing would have been to be pissed off that ice slammed my car and instantly I was like, didn't hit the glass. I could still drive my car. And so I just chose, I just chose to think of it as like, it could have been worse. This is actually pretty good. Yeah, And so, you know, that was an example of reframing where like, it takes effort to really um, recognize how we typically always go to the negative and it takes effort to try and reframe things as a potentially a positive. Um, But once you do it and you start to get repetitions of doing that, it gets much easier, right? So that like, if a trip I've booked gets canceled, I'm like... The next one's going to be a good trip, you know. Maybe that trip shouldn't. Maybe something bad could have happened on that trip, you know. Like mm-hmm. you can make whatever stories up you want, but I think if we just always view things as good, we're choosing to frame things in a way that um, allows us to not create mental suffering and bring that on ourselves. Because like no one is causing me to think of something as bad apart from me, and if I can avoid thinking of it as bad, I think you still have to be grounded in reality. But for the most part, I find reframing to be very. Um, powerful to just consciously decide not to think of things as bad because i don't even know if they're bad or not yet
1: yeah yeah and and i i've also heard that that chinese proverb and it's it's so good because it makes you remember all those things and i think here it's it's also what you're saying is it's such a good example of how you really need to work with your brain and your mind because i mean i think the research has shown that we're five or 10 times more prone to remember or focus on negative things. And it's, it's from like when we were like living out in nature and we had to be really observant of, of dangers and negative things coming up because it was a matter of survival. So that's how, just how the brain is wired. But now we focus maybe too much on the bad things where we don't have to. So this is really a good tool of, how you can work with, with your brain in order to cope with with that and really reframe what, what's going on in your mind. And again, being curious about how how we can or what we can accomplish by doing that. So it's yeah.
0: Yeah, I think the negativity bias is very important to understand because you know the the, the things you see in media are geared specifically towards the fact that they know we have a negativity bias. So Mm -hmm. things that are negative will capture our attention much easier. And so if you log into some social media platform, it can literally look like the world is, terrible things are happening everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. And never before has the planet's problems been able to be your problems. But I think a realization we have to have is like, I'm self-inflicting this, right? I'm choosing to tune into all the problems that are happening um, and letting them affect me Whereas I could probably just start to parse out some of the noise and realize that like, I know I have a negativity bias. I know that all the negative things aren't actually relevant. I don't need to know all these things. Um, and so being able to defend ourselves starts with an awareness that we have a tendency to view negative things as more important. Because from a survival perspective, like you said, negative things are more important to stay alive. Okay. Um, and just knowing that, just, know, just the awareness of our negativity bias can oftentimes Give us an extra set of thoughts to kind of work with when we're when we're starting to get into negative um, rots and ruts in terms of our thinking um let's talk about just briefly mental hygiene and then we can mention some experiments and then we'll wrap up sure so i really like you know i started to kind of think of this as a parallel and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this um dental hygiene and mental hygiene because i think when we talk about mental health this is sort of like the pragmatic practical element that i think people can latch to and have it be more concrete instead of just like this esoteric thing that mm-hmm. some people do. Um, and you know, if dental hygiene is sort of at a simple level, reducing the amount of refined sugars you eat and cleaning your teeth daily to me, mental hygiene is reducing the amount of noise we allow into our minds and doing some daily cleaning, which for me is meditation or solitude. Um, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts on sort of like, how do we get people to, have mental health or a mental health practice be more concrete and relevant in their lives like how what conversations have you had and where you've been able to sort of express what mental health is to you and help someone engage with the process of understanding mental health a bit more and how they can actually develop their own practice
1: Oh, that's a really good question. And, and I really like the the definition of mental hygiene compared to dental hygiene, by the way. Yeah. It really makes it it's so, so simple to remember. Uh, and I think simple is maybe a keyword when you want to encourage people to focus more on their mental health, to realize that it's not really something that's that is complicated or strange or only the... Um, hippie yoga people doing and and so on um and i actually had not too long ago a discussion um, about this at work because very fortunately our uh, top manager at work he encourages people to meditate so he says yeah everyone can um use the company um, yeah, used the company credit card to buy access to meditation apps, but he never really said why they should go meditate. So mm. uh, we had a discussion on that um, to just bring forward the um, benefits of focusing on on your mental health a little bit more. And mainly, the input from most people was, "Oh, that's so relieving to hear that I can start. It's doing five minutes a day, and I will actually experience some some benefits from it, like decision making." Uh, easier to make decisions or problem solving capabilities or whatever you can direct it towards in a work situation. But I think um, most people think that mental health and maybe meditation and mental hygiene, it sounds really complicated. So I think we need to really um, making it easier or sound simpler maybe. And I think what your definition here with the dental and mental hygiene is a, is a really good one because it's so easy to remember. Everyone brushes their teeth right? because they know the benefit of it. And similarly, I think everyone should take care of their mental hygiene because they should know the benefits of it.
0: Yeah. And brushing your, you know, I think making it accessible, I agree. I think that's the biggest thing, right? Like people, we talk about mental health. It's this thing we're aware of. We don't know how to define it. We don't know how to concretely apply mental health training in our life. And I think most people still look at it from the snapshot perspective where like my mental health is good or bad, but it's like saying my dental health is good or bad. um, But they don't know that brushing your teeth can be very simple, take up very little time and requires no skill. You just literally have to rub a toothbrush on your teeth. You just literally have to sit with yourself and accept curiously whatever happens. And I think... Mm -hmm. Like you said, the release that people feel where it's like, oh, all I have to do is five minutes and I can actually get benefit from it. It's like, you know, we all know we brush our teeth to prevent cavities. Mm. We don't know that we can do small behaviors each day to prevent mental health um, issues. And um, yeah, I think even just from the mental hygiene perspective, like a, a little daily check-in of like, how am I doing? How is, how are my thoughts? How am I feeling? What are my emotions? Like just a brief check in, even if your meditation session is just that um, taking a couple minutes to check in with yourself, that can be a good um, way to apply mental hygiene. I think high quality sleep. And, and um, I think you wrote hen and egg because it's, you know, it's like, does sleep lead to better mental health or does mental health lead to better sleep? I I don't even know if it matters because for me, when I started meditating, my sleep got way better and then my mental health was better. So it's like, I don't even know if the directionality matters, but I think just knowing that sleep is important and I'm sure your lesson on sleep did a great job at sort of unpacking that, but I think we underestimate how important sleep is for our mental health. Mm. Um, And then just periods of reduced input, right? Like we're, it's so easy to constantly be plugged into work or to entertainment or, or to be speaking with others. And I think just simple things like taking a half an hour and going on a walk with no external input can be, radically refreshing for the brain. And we underestimate how accessible that is. Everyone can go out for a walk. Um, And we underestimate how impactful those simple things can be, right? We think we have to do the crazy thing of meditating like a monk for half an hour to get any effect, when in reality, it's like really simple things compound. You just have to get started.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and maybe going back to the dental hy- hygiene again, uh, I think the hard part there is reducing the refined sugars, at least for most people. And similarly with the mental hygiene, the hard part is probably to reduce the noise. But again, there is, as you said, it doesn't have to be that, that complicated or difficult, like going on a walk, like you said, is, is one thing. Um, and maybe also consciously limiting the input from, from social media or from screens or whatever is also something that can be pretty hard, but also brings huge benefits if you really do it. Like, for instance, I, I try to um, limit my screen time when from when I pick up the kids in the afternoon until they go to bed. Uh, I put my screen on a... I have the timer on, on my phone to not... Be with my phone uh, during that time. And it it gives me a trigger when I sometimes even grab my phone anyway and say, Oh yeah, right. I'm not supposed to do this now. It can be pretty hard, like with the refined sugars and then the teeth, but um uh, beneficial when you put in the work, I would say.
0: Yeah, I was watching a video the other day that someone sent me by a guy called Sadguru, and he had a great metaphor. He's like He's like, diarrhea can be exhausting. He's like, if you (laughs) ever had diarrhea, it is, you're just drained. You're, you're like a zombie. It's exhausting. And he's like, what's the first thing you do when you have diarrhea, you stop eating because clearly whatever you're eating is not, your system's not liking it. Mm -hmm. And you know, he likened it to, uh, we, we often have mental diarrhea, right? Where we continue taking in, consuming all this stuff and we are being mentally exhausted and having no energy left but what we don't think to do is to stop consuming right like the the miserableness of of being exhausted from mental diarrhea leads us and the world around us nudges us towards consume more things to get the dopamine right to relieve the discomfort and what we don't think of is like if we go through a tiny bit more discomfort by eliminating the inputs it actually is what results in getting rid of the mental diarrhea Mm -hmm. um so yeah. I love that. You know, and it's all about a lot oh, yeah. of times it boils down to prompts, right? Like, um, like you said, you have a notification on your phone to not use your phone. Like that is a, you had the foresight to put a prompt because you know, it's going to tempt you. Mm-hmm. And I think if people just get better at plugging in prompts into their lives, they will have so much more success with behavior changes because it's really just because we forget. Right. Um, so yeah, let's talk about some experiments. So we'll always mention experiments and lessons as just templates for things that people can try. And the hope is that every nerd that goes through the problem or goes through the program uh, can sort of contribute experiments that they've done and had value from that maybe aren't listed yet. So uh, some of the experiments that we have for this lesson, starting from easy to more ambitious would be starting with how do you define mental health? So I probably should have mentioned that at the start of the lesson, because now we've kind of plugged in our definitions, but, um, you know, how do you define mental health yourself? Um, this both gives you a little bit of clarity on what mental health is right now. And also gives you something to look back on. So in like three months, if you go back and say, how, how did I define mental health then? How do I define it now? You can kind of see the changes happening. Um, what are your thoughts on your current mental health? Like, how would you, would you consider your current mental health, um, poor good um, you know, like just to get a, like a little self-assessment, uh, create some concrete learning objectives for this lesson. So for the, you know, listening to this lesson and the next 10 days that you're spending on the mind, what are some learning objectives? What are things that you want to learn or want to start applying in your life? Um, log the experience of applying rain in a certain situation and maybe create some, write down some prompts that you can use to apply rain more regularly. I think that's a good experiment. Uh, The mind project last year was five daily minutes for 30 days straight of meditation. So maybe that's a good daily meditation experiment. And then the last one I had listed is, um, this is a more ambitious one. And obviously not everyone would be able to do this, but spend 24 hours in complete solitude. I've done this. It is like surprisingly, uh, it's insanely difficult, but it gives you so much information if you're tuning in. And that means like no books, no podcasts, no phone, no other people around you. 24 hours seems like forever um sometimes but it's very valuable any experiments you would want to contribute that aren't listed there
1: i think this sums it up pretty pretty good um and maybe all i mean they all go together in some way as well it's it's as you said it's good to uh, maybe go back to your definition after a while to see if it's it's changing when you've maybe delve more into the subject and, and had some more knowledge and tried it out yourself to reassess um, and work. Think about it as a process uh, when working with mental health. Yeah.
0: Yes, I agree. Well, to everyone listening, we hope you found this lesson helpful and that you maybe took some notes in your log Uh, listening to this is proof of work that you're committing yourself to understanding and applying health in your life. So thank you for being here. Thank you for taking responsibility for your health. I think this lesson is a really good one um, as a foundation to create discussions with within your pod or with your learning partner to sort of share. You know, when we share struggles and challenges that we're facing, it often gets um, mirrored that people are like, oh, I'm struggling with that too, right? Like I noticed that the first person that wrote how challenging the meditation project was last year opened up the floodgates to so many people being like, I'm having lots of problems with that too. We want to start over again together. So I think... You're really using community with things like mental health to stimulate discussions about mental health, different perspectives, different challenges, different victories, experiments that you did that you found really powerful. The more you share, the more you can learn. So uh, thanks for being here and listening, and we'll catch you in the next lesson.